Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, 101.3, various other frequencies, and on the web, www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bose-Taylor. This warm autumn hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, gives us the very best in fiction and non-fiction. Philip Todras talks to Paul Weinberg about Traces and Tracks, a beautiful book, tracing Paul's 30-year journey with the sand. Beverly Rosemuller found Irish author John Boyne's book, The Heart's Invisible Furies, profoundly moving, disturbing and compellingly readable. Jay Heal thinks his way into two new picture books, one by Jude Daly and one by Nicky Daly. Philippa Chaffetz tucks happily into A Bite of Latin America, a culinary diary, by Susie Chats-Anderson, while we take a satisfying look at Tony Jackman's food stuff. Melvin Minar enjoyed the zippy title and the book. It's called Warriors, Dilettantes and Businessmen, Bird Collectors During the Mid-19th to Mid-20th Centuries, by W. R. J. Dean. Cindy Moritz finds a cornucopia of small stories in Stephen Boyke Sidley's Free Association. Vanessa Levenstein reviews Stay With Me by, and I can't pronounce her name, <laughs> Darby Adabo, a promising young Nigerian author, mentored by Margaret Atwood. If we've time, but I doubt it, you'll hear million-dollar Leslie Pierce talking about, well, herself, and her latest romantic novel, Dead to Me. Do listen up for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks, give us your best. Hi, Gary. Well, thanks. I've got a couple of things of announcements first. First of all, we Wordsworth Books is going to be at the Cape Town Book Sale. This is the first ever sort of general Cape Town book sale. It's going to be held in the Avenues, which is next to the aquarium. Uh, booking can be made through web tickets. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. I know, I've seen the books there. There are amazing books at fantastic prices. So that's the Cape Town book sale, and that starts on the 16th of June. That's Friday, the 16th of June. Right, we've got a, a lot of fantastic novels that have just come into the shop. First of all, on sale tomorrow is the new Arundhati Roy. Now, everyone knows she, she wrote that amazing book, The God of Small Things, which won the Booker Prize, has been a huge bestseller for many, many years. I think it was 10 years ago, or maybe even 20, I don't know. But an astonishing book. Any of you who haven't read it, you must read it. Well, this is her new book. It's called The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. And it's been received with great acclaim all around the world. It goes on sale tomorrow. I haven't managed to read it yet, but she is a, a fantastic author. She is one of those uh, people that write up with the great authors of the 20th century and the 21st century. So that is a book worth having 
and worth looking out for. It's the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, Arundhati Roy, and it goes on sale tomorrow on Tuesday. Well, on the opposite side of the spectrum, the new Dion Mayer has come in. Now, he is also, I think, a, a fantastic author. He's one of those people that everything he writes is instantly accessible, very readable, absorbing, wonderful, detective work, etc. But this is a little bit different. This is about the end of the world. This is his dystopian novel. This is something that would be quite a risk. And he pulled it off. We would normally have the Cape Town procedural cop novels from him, but this is dystopian. It's interesting. It's the end of the world as we know it, and you get absorbed. It's a big, thick, fat book, and it's got great comments on it from the, from the likes of Stephen King. It's been a huge bestseller in Afrikaans, and I predict this book is going to sell and sell and sell, and it's 260 rand. He's wonderful. We love him. Okay. There's now political books are to a penny out there. We've got the Guptas at the moment. We've got Tuliman and Seller. You name it, we've got it. Paul Hoffman's new book. And here is another one. They are all fascinating because we're in the circumstances at the moment. We don't know what's happening, what is going to happen. Anything that seems to be put out there seems to just crash off uh, the rocks that are the government here. So um, we have a new one. Uh, which goes right back to the apartheid days. Um, We have to realize that all these scandals that are happening now, we've had them before, maybe in not such huge uh, way that they are now, but we have had them before. This is Apartheid, Guns and Money, which dissects some of the scandals of the apartheid era, and it's fascinating. This is something that people should read to realize governments all over the world and governments in whatever time they are there is corruption there are things that happen that they want to cover up and they do cover up and eventually the journalists and the authors get hold of them and make hay with a book like this fascinating reading Apartheid, Guns and Money A Tale of Profit by Henny van Furen and that's 260 Rand and then a book that I really, really love. I know everyone likes Alexander McCall Smith, and it's his Botswana novels that are really the key to his popularity. But I'm a great fan of the Isabel Dalhousie novels. Uh, we're on to about number six or so around there. Now, Isabel Dalhousie is a Scottish philosopher who talks and thinks about the world, the modern world, her family, her marriage, her children, and we've grown up with her. We've gone through her love and her marriage, her first son, now we have a second child, and everything that happens in her life she thinks about. She calls herself a a philosophical detective because people come to her with problems and ask her to solve them. And she has, they're very small problems, but very big for the person involved, obviously. And she does it. Uh, Alexander McCall Smith has a way with people, a way with words, and he's someone that you love to know. And Isabel Dalhousie is one of those people. It's called A Distant View of Everything. I can highly recommend it. An Isabel Dalhousie novel of Alexander McCall Smith, and it's two ninety-five. And lastly, I'm just going to mention, uh, it's just come into the shop, Meat Manifesto, Proper and Delicious. This is by Andy Fenner. 
Now, this is a new type of cookbook that goes right to the basis of what we primarily eat in meat, how to choose meat, what to select, how long should it age, what cuts we should do, what cooking should happen for what cuts, what type of meat, etc., etc. And it's beautifully laid out, beautifully thought out, and it's a, a book for anyone who does cook meat. It's called The Meat Manifesto, Proper and Delicious by Andy Fenner. Beautifully done. It's for the conscious carnivore and it's 550 rand. And that's all for me. Thanks very much. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, Andrew. Um, Philip Saunders, a zippy title there. Traces and Tracks, a 30-year journey with the sand by Paul Weinberg. And Paul, tell me, I mean, it's a 30-year journey and really is one both in words and photos. I'm very used to the photographs, but I was also very impressed by the text that accompanies it and tried not to be seduced only by the photos. Tell me about the journey. Well, the journey starts in 1984. I'd been a student and I'd studied the sand at university and I was intrigued to know how the sand were doing. In between, I'd gone to the South African Army and recruited as a a young conscript and I was aware that indigenous people including the sand were you know kind of included in that cause to win the hearts and minds in you know of the population in Namibia and then I connected with John Marshall the famous filmmaker um, and we went to what's called Bushmanland and what I saw was like shocking I saw people lining up at the bottle store I saw many people drunk I saw people kind of also buying goods and in the shops. And so, like, the myth of the hunter-gatherer or the expectation of the hunter-gatherer was completely shattered. And that basically sparked off the journey that's taken 30 years to try and find out how Africa's first people are surviving. Is it realistic to still think of or imagine that there would still be hunter-gatherers in this day and age? Uh, that's a very good question because you know I think it brings into sharp relief the sort of the issues at play. I mean on the one level the media loves to see the sand or the bushman frozen in time. You know these people living in harmony with nature and just untouched by world events and history. And those of us who followed closely, you know, the South African and Southern African, you know, stories know that that's just a myth. Um, the sand was subject to genocide. Um, and where they have had land in Botswana and Namibia, they've been also subject to great oppression. So the hunter-gatherer as like frozen in time has been kind of eroded for, for you know, a hundred years. So that's what I kind of confronted. But there's a whole industry of like representing the sand as if time stood still. And I was kind of working against the grain. You certainly do that both in the facts that you give us and the fact that you've recorded over this length of time. And you've also taken us to many places along the route. I don't know if you want to comment on that or, or add to that. Yeah, I think one of the problems when people talk about the sand and they, you know, let's say go to the Northern Cape and spend time with the Kraper family or the Kumani, and then they'll say, you know, this is how the sand are today. Well, that's just one region in in a whole bigger picture. And, you know, it's sort of a kind of 
way of essentializing the experience and um it changes and it's different from place to place community to community country to country so it's very problematic when people go to one place and then kind of give this generic position or well, this is how the sand are today and that's what i also worked against i wanted to get the sort of micro in-depth stories in in different regions and and nuance them so what you are also doing is recording change and that comes through very dramatically in the pictures and the scapes that you give us. Do you want to comment perhaps on some of the photos or some of the th- images that strike you as particularly important to you in that journey that you took? Well, you know, people who've looked at the book have said, well, you know, I, you know, they see two versions. They see like the black and white, and that's kind of more anthropological or ethnographic and then the color you know are different so I mean there were two different layers that that happened in this book the first when I was you know starting out I just spent time and lived with communities and those were kind of more ethnographic and then when I visited again in 2013 and 14 I photographed kind of color landscapes they're more landscapish um, I also filmed Interviews with over twenty people, which is part of the exhibition, and and helped me, you know, in in my um, writing of the story. Well, it's a fascinating trail. So, although it's called Traces and Tracks, it's very much a historical trail by Paul Weinberg of what he saw and what he felt and what he heard. And I think it's an impressive collection of images and words. It's Traces and Tracks, a thirty-year journey with the sand, and it's published by Jacana Media. 30 years, a long time. And here's our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200 rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. June the 21st is the winter solstice. Does this make it the longest day or does it make it the shortest day? We're waiting for your answers on 021-401-1013. Beverly Ross Muller, a profoundly moving disturbing and compelling book from Irish writer John Boyne. John Boyne, the Irish author of The Boy in Striped Pyjamas, has produced another profoundly moving, disturbing and compellingly readable book, in this case for adults. The Heart's Invisible Furies is a detailed and sometimes damning narrative of a boy-to-man story in the conservative childhood of his youth and all his growing years. This is a fine book, and also a wrenching, very human tale. That Boyne is gay, and that he was indeed abused as a child in Ireland, is deeply and unapologetically a part of his writing. Still in his 40s, he is regarded as one of the finest novelists in Ireland today, certainly one of the most successful. During his stay in Cape Town, during the Franschhoek Literary Festival in 2015, he told me that he had come from a loving family, but he was clearly furious about the role clerics had played in Ireland. He pointed out that there is still much to be done regarding the rights of women, and also in allowing priests and nuns to marry. Surely they would be better at their jobs if they were loved and were able to love in return, he said. This his latest novel, Boyne's story begins with the ritual humiliation of a young woman, Catherine, who in 1945 in a small village in Ireland finds herself pregnant and is literally cast out of the church by a ranting and hypocritical priest 
who it later transpires has had a few children on the wrong side of the blanket himself. Of course, the father of her child is not sought or punished. She pays the price alone. Her baby boy is adopted by an exceedingly odd couple, the Averys, who never cease to remind little Cyril that he is not a real Avery, but adopted. They are emotionally estranged, though his physical needs are seen to. Maud, the closed-off adopted mother, is a writer who, to her absolute fury, turns out to be destined for fame. Stabbing out her cigarette in an egg yolk when she discovers this, she trembles in fury. The vulgarity of it all, she says, popularity, readers, I can't bear it. Boyne is a dab hand at sending up pretensions, genuine or fake, and his book, though serious, is often very funny too. At boarding school he falls deeply in love with the beautiful boy he bunks with, but never dares reveal his passion. Instead he marries Julian's sister, but flees from her immediately after their wedding, and in Amsterdam finds Bastian, the longtime partner and love of his mature life. They adopt a rascal off the streets and raise him before Bastian is killed in the USA in a hate crime in which Cyril is badly wounded. The book is divided into segments of his life, each one seven years apart, over seven decades. Therein is woven the varied and tangled threads of his life. And this construct also creates a developmental curve that enables him to integrate his wounds, his work, and his fulfillment. If it's biographical in part, we should not assume too much. The great Irish writer and boozer Brendan Bahan cautions in a cameo role that a book would be terrible boring if everything in it were true, especially an autobiography. There is a sweetness within the sometimes sour streams of his narrative, and a roundness in the resolution of Cyril's life story. At one point, Boyne repeats Sigmund Freud's quote, that the Irish were the one race of people for whom psychoanalysis is of no use whatsoever, and as a direct descendant of Irish immigrants, I tend to agree with that. But this book, I think, may suggest Freud is wrong. Healing is possible in a compassionate world, and more creativity and happens occurs when hate recedes. It remains a possibility that the heart's invisible furies may, after all, be set to rest. A fine and absorbing book. The End.
Pavan by Francisco Tariga and it was played by popular and brilliant guitarist James Grace. Jay Heal, two picture books by two dailies. In Claymont by the sea live two book creators, Jude Daly and Nicky Daly. They live happily together, though they have separate studios, where each one creates children's books in his or her own style. Jude Daly's latest book takes the old fable of six blind philosophers, perhaps, who encounter an elephant. Jude makes them six blind mice and individually each discovers a truth about the elephant, which is taking a rest in a farmer's shed, concerning its hide or trunk or tail, but assorted details do not present a full picture, until the whole elephant stands before them, and even if they cannot see the elephant, they can see the wonder of an elephant. And so can any child introduced to six blind mice and an elephant, easily aware of their great difference in size. In Nicky Daly's book, called Surprise, Surprise, Mr. and Mrs. Tati live simply and happily with one disappointment. They have no baby. And with childlike simplicity, Mr. Tati goes to town. You buy shoes in a shoe shop, so he goes to the baby shop and asks to buy a baby. But the shopkeeper, more adult than Mr. Tati, informs him, We have no babies. Disappointed, Mr. Tati turns for home and meets a farmer selling piglets. So he buys one, and Mrs. Tati is delighted, knits clothes for the baby piglet, and together they bring him up with everything required until it is time for him to go to school. And then they meet a second figure of adult authority. This is a school for little boys and girls. I'm afraid little pigs are not allowed. <sighs> Greatly disappointed, they take the little pig home. Until one night, Mr. Tati makes a wish upon a star, and I can't reveal the ending to you, except to say that children have much more fun being children. They know the wonder of being children. Two picture books, utterly different, one contemplative, one happily childlike. Six blind mice and an elephant, and surprise, surprise, each in its way explaining to young minds that discovering details is only part of the way towards knowledge. All good children's books have a point to make. The mice have shared their wisdom. The Tati family has taken refuge in childhood, a bit like Peter Pan. I wonder often if we do not rush too eagerly towards early childhood learning without supplying enough time for children to be children, sending them off for organized playtime or plonking them in front of the television is no substitute for letting them play in sand and mud and just be children, or letting their minds go off exploring 
like the mice. Beautiful, Jay. Let children be children. And here again is our easy-peasy competition question. To win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers, June the 21st is the winter solstice. Does this make it the longest day or the shortest day? Do ring us and tell us on 021 401 1013. Philippa Schaefitz, a colourful cover there for A Bite of Latin America. A Bite of Latin America, a culinary diary by Susie Chats Anderson, published by Human and Rousseau. Priced at 340 Rand. How intrepid and admirable to give up steady office jobs, pack away your possessions, and follow your passion for good food. Susie Chats Anderson, the author, and her husband bought round the world one year valid tickets, but they never got further than South America. They had fallen in love with the vibrancy, culture, and food discovering the common ground, the distinguishing differences, as they slowly moved south from Mexico. An intentional one-month stay in Mexico turned into almost three months, and still it was hard to leave this fabulous country, the delicious new tastes, exotic crafts, and warmth of the people. Susie documented experiences as she traveled through Latin America, bringing home stories and recipes to share, now collated in one lively, colourful cookbook full of photographs of food, people and places. It's a region, writes Susie, in which the Maya, Aztec, Inca, Spanish and Portuguese all made their contribution before being broadly influenced by immigration from Africa, the Caribbean, Asia and Europe. This has resulted in a complex layering of flavours and techniques that leaves one in a constant state of culinary amazement. Susie takes care in informing the readers about the ingredients, the techniques, the cooking utensils. She subtly adapts traditional recipes where necessary to make them doable in South Africa. Where does one start? This is an enticing selection. Definitely for me, the caldo de pollo, a Mexican chicken, lime and rice soup, the pescada a la vercruzana, the Mexican fish baked in olive and tomato sauce, costillas de cerda borrachas, drunken pork chops with rum and cream, from a Costa Rican friend, Nicaraguan chef at Monte's surf camp in the region. Tata con rellena de polla, a spinach and potato Spanish-style omelette from Colombia. From Peru, ceviche de pescado, and a lovely quinoa salad. Brazilian cheesy beans and rice. A must-try corn cake made with polenta, condensed milk, coconut milk and corn kernels, traditionally served with coffee for breakfast. From Argentina, a good recipe for chimichurri, the spicy fresh herb marinade and salsa, gleaned from an Argentinian-owned restaurant in the beach town of Palme in Costa Rica, and the secret to the irresistible Argentinian caramel-filled biscuits, alfajores. 
truly recipes that you'll want to cook, want to eat, and want to share with family and friends around a table, colorfully set, Latin American style, as captured in the photographs in the book. From Truancy to Triumph, Tony Jackman's life turned out well after all. And now, with figs on the front cover, he's given us chapter and verse of a varied life in a cookbook called Foodstuff. And where better to make puffy Yorkshire puddings than from a foolproof recipe by an expat Yorkshireman? The truancy was school. The triumphs were many, mainly in journalism, in playwriting, in running restaurants. Alongside the figs, rare these days, and the Yorkshire puddings to beef up your roast, are old favourites, new twists. Each section has a morsel of Tony's memoir, his years at Cannes, reporting on the film festivals for South African newspapers, his hard-working mother, his choppy childhood, his steady marriage, his children and the death of one son. Foodstuff is finely designed. Myberg Duplessis' food photographs are so beautiful, styled by Sarah Dahl, that you'd be forgiven for foregoing a recipe or two to put pull sorry. That you'd be forgiven for foregoing a recipe or two to pull the pictures to frame for your kitchen walls. That's the stuff. Melvin Miller, intriguingly called book, it's warriors, dilettantes and businessmen. Cape Town's lovely long street with its lusty business history deserves a book of its own. In W.R.J. Dean's zippy-named Warriors, Dilettantes and Businessmen, studiously subtitled Bird Collectors During the Mid-19th to Mid-20th Centuries in Southern Africa, we learn that among the many commercial thresholds in Long Street, Charles Villet and Sons let into a shop that pervade bird skins, insects, and other curiosities, quote. Villette was probably, writes Dean, the first formal natural history dealer in South Africa, trading in animals, etc., only closing his doors in 1827. Those years were a boom time for hawkers and traders of the quaint that nature could provide in the shape of birds, animals, flowers, insects. The word curiosities had an exceptional powerful draw, and a cabinet of curiosities was a grandly considered and specific display case in a well-to-do household. Cape Town University has a splendid Victorian example containing 32 KwaZulu-Natal birds. Bird collecting, feathery bodies, eggs, nests, and often the beautiful plume as fashionable accoutrement, has its own explicit and remarkably divergent history, and Richard Dean, a distinguished international ornithologist, has turned it into a rather fun read. We all know that serious bird watchers are one of a kind, often a trifle obsessive. We also know that collecting, whether stamps, cars or toby mugs, plugs into a particular human fixation. But I bet few ever consider the deeper stories and motivation behind the great international museum collections of stuffed birds, nests and eggs. Brought together historically by the roots of scientific academic investigation on the one hand and collective preservation on the other, bird collections hold an unusual place in our human interaction with nature. Although Dean's charts specifically the boom era, the chapters have delightful titles like A Bird in the Hand is Money in the Pocket, Military Politics, Battle Zones and Birds, and 
birds, bees and butterflies or my collection is bigger than yours. His subtle subtext is one that triggers sensitive questions about ecology. And of course, also the role of the modern natural history museum and those that link to it. Yes, there are long lists, sometimes too much information for the casual reader, who can effortlessly read past the detailed footnotes, extensive reference sources, but in a curious way, Dean is also telling a story that fits into a niche in our discussion of decolonization, of opening our minds and reevaluating. One such place where this is happening is parallel off the top of Long Street in Victoria, where the Ezekiel SA Museum holds the fort in the company gardens. It is here where one of the great bird collections had a specific focus when Andrew Smith was appointed superintendent after Lord Charles Somerset founded the museum in 1825. He brought along his bird collection, but it was later sold off. Smith, a Scottish army doctor stationed at Cape Town from 1820 for a few years, made significant exploratory journeys into Southern Africa. His records and collection, says Dean, make him one of the most useful contributors to the early years of South African ornithology. With warriors, dilettantes and businessmen, distributed by Jakana for the John Fulker Bird Book Fund, Dean himself makes a more than useful but pleasingly readable contribution. Cindy Moritz, Free Association by Stephen Boyke Sidley. Stephen Sidley's latest novel is about Max Lurie, a failed novelist and psychologist who has taken up podcasting to earn a living, and also because he really likes doing it. Set in Los Angeles, where Sidley lived for many years before returning to Johannesburg, Max has found a small office space in the building of digital marketing company Fidget, which belongs to a childhood sweetheart. She has become famous, and with a legal name change from Bethany to Pixel, has embraced the world online. Max's producer, Bongani, hails from South Africa and keeps Max's wild imaginings in check. Bongani is a closed book with an opaque history, unlike Max, who lays it all bare on his podcast, Free Association, broadcasting to over 50,000 listeners per episode and climbing. But does he really tell all? He speaks about a twin brother, a girlfriend he calls Anne to protect her identity, but neither of them exist in real life. He weaves the characters into stories with actual people, his sister Delphine, his ailing father and trapped mother, and a homeless man, Jake, who lives on his street, among others. Sidley has structured the novel by interspersing Max's podcast script with narrated chapters that speak of his daily life. The two narratives coexist, not always comfortably, and there are times that the reader can be forgiven for muddling what's real and what's made up. But then, and this is something Sidley reminds us with glee, the whole story is made up, both narratives. It's the author telling the story about the character Max, who in turn tells the story on his podcast about the life he wants to live. And Sidley is also quite comfortable with leaving his own fingerprint on a story. He declared at the Franschuk Literary Festival, I have no problem being recognized in my books. He is not embarrassed to deal with themes that are close to his heart, which in this case is the extent of the lies we tell, exacerbated by social media tools. I was pleased to hear him speak on a panel in Franschuk recently as it really gave me good insight into free association and the thought process behind it. 
Sidley is a big fan of social media, if only as a necessary tool to get to audiences these days. The panel discussion, which was titled Why Are We Still Talking Genre, veered quite off track to deal with the topic of how we present ourselves online, with Fred Stradom, the moderator, commenting, Once you realise everyone is lying, it levels the playing field. Without giving away the book's ending, however, it becomes clear that for the author, there are hugely positive ways to use digital platforms, and we need to rise above the default narcissistic mode that feels natural in this space. So, we return to Max Lurie. He has been honest about being dishonest, but not to his audience, which grows to some 75,000 until he pushes it too far and life intersects with fiction, bringing some made-for-TV drama into his otherwise unremarkable world. It's at this point that Max's character has an aha moment, finds his truth, so to speak. He begins to look outward, moving away from I and me and from portraying a life that wasn't real. Besides the deep and varied content Stephen Sidley has offered up, the style in which he writes, akin to the greats of American fiction from which he draws great inspiration, think Philip Roth, Joseph Heller, Norman Mailer, is hugely gratifying for fans of this type of literature. His American mother fed him a steady diet of these authors as a young impressionable boy, and he says he's attuned to their pitch and timbre. There are layers of story and ideas crafted into a fine package here. It's timely, relevant, and a great read. Another great read. Vanessa, Vanessa Levenstein, a promising young Nigerian writer with um, a surname I can't pronounce. There is a fascinating insert on YouTube where Nigerian author Ayobamo Adebayo discusses her debut novel Stay With Me, which was long listed for the prestigious Bailey Award. Ayobamo talks about pre-colonial times in Nigeria where women occupied literally every possible position in society. Women were priestesses in the royal council, yet after colonization a lot changed as they adopted Victorian values. In this novel the author explores the agency of women in Nigeria against the background of polygamy and the political turmoil of the 80s. The novel is narrated by both Yejedi and Aiken. Yejedi is a young, smart, educated and successful woman who marries Aiken because she loves him. For a while their union is blissful, yet in time it becomes marred by their desperation to conceive. The pressure is overwhelming and leads to frantic measures. Yejedi takes part in a ritual which includes a goat and even has a phantom pregnancy. Eventually, pressurized by his mother, Aiken marries a second wife in the hope of producing an offspring. Yejedi's own mother died in childbirth and she was raised by her father's wives and was always the outsider. Her marriage, which was meant to fill the hole, in time only deepened it. Aiken was supposed to be the love of my life, my salvation from being alone in the world. I could not allow him to be flawed. Her husband's biggest flaw wasn't, ironically enough, his deep secret, but the fact that he spun a web of lies to cover it. For a lie to survive, it needs conspirators. And it wasn't only Aiken's family who made it possible, but the structure of a patriarchal society. However, the author is far too skilled to create a polarized world, and Aiken's journey is equally poignant. To say more would spoil this well-executed, page-turning novel, one in which the author deals with a delicate subject matter with sensitivity and at times humor.
It takes unexpected twists and never allows the reader to be complacent. Adobayo's Stay With Me is a book that will do just that. And that's it then. Thank you for being with us. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. F-M-R.